Hi, Chaim Fogelman. I've been working at the OK for about 32 years, just about, and did many different jobs there. Started being a from checking in on restaurants and food service, and then eventually I took over and started the new accounts division, how people to deduce people to the kosher world and what needs to be done in practical terms. And after about 10 years or a little bit more than that, I um, went into the education and the PR department of the Kosh of Kosher, the editor of the Kosher Spirit magazine, things like that. And about four years ago, I was put into the position of being part of the executive VAD of the Kashrus of the OK. Just a short little brief history of the OK. The OK started in around 19, mid-1930s. And in the mid-19s, by a person called, he was a chemist, Abraham Goldstein. That's why a lot of people refer to it as OK Labs, because he just was a chemist. But we're not really a lab where we look at food retroactively to see if it's kosher. We actually make sure it's kosher to begin with, which we'll get into in a minute. In the mid-60s, 1960s, Rabbi Bernard Levy, Beryl Levy, was given over the responsibilities of taking over the OK. At that time, the OK had 15 companies which they certified as kosher. In the late 80s, Rabbi Levy passed away, Rabbi Bernard Levy passed away, and his son, Rabbi Daniel Levy, took over the certification. And Rabbi Levy led the OK and grew the OK till COVID, where he suddenly passed away during COVID. He was one of the first to go. And very untimely, a very healthy, young 72-year-old. At this time, from the 15 companies that started in the mid-60s, the OK certifies today over 600,000 products throughout the whole country. 600,000? Over 600,000. We can't give you an exact number because every day it changes a little. Things are added, things are taken away, whatever. So it's around six, it's a little over 600,000 products. And we certify every continent everywhere over the world. And we are the second to the largest kosher certifying agency. And obviously the way we do this today is with the help of the latest technologies, with computer, we have satellite offices and affiliated offices in different places of the world. Our main office is in Crown Heights in New York. There's an affiliate office here in, in, in Eretz Yisrael, in Elad. And we have different offices in California and in different key places. So, let's talk a little bit about kosher. I don't think I need to tell you the basic rules of kosher, because I take it you know that here. But a little bit of why kosher is so special and why kosher is so different than any other mitzvah that we do. And then we'll talk about a little bit the practical end of how a company gets certified kosher. And the rabbi said, how do we apply the halacha today? So while he was saying that, I was thinking about a halacha and how we could apply it today, how, we, how that works out. So a lot of people think that kosher is healthier, or cleaner, and how lovely would that be if that was actually true? We hope that would be true. Um, inspire to that, but that's not really the main idea of what kosher is. I believe you used to say that, could be that people say that kosher means cleaner, because when you look at a kosher kitchen, you see that everything is in its place, because everything has to be separate milk, the dairy, and the meat products. So everything just can't be laying around. There's a place for everything. So perhaps that's why people start to think that it's kosher, kosher means cleaner. But in actuality, we hope that it's cleaner. In certain aspects, it's certainly cleaner. We hope that it's healthier. But that's not really the main reason why we keep kosher. As you probably know, that there are three categories of mitzvot, the three categories of mitzvahs. There's edus, mishpatim, and chukim. And edus means testimonial mitzvahs, like Shabbos, which we testify, we say that Hashem created the world in six days and rested on Shabbos. We celebrate Pesach because Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. And those are mitzvahs, and those are things that many people do. I mean, in America, they celebrate the 4th of July because that's the day they became a country, and so on. 
Then there is mishpatim, which mishpatim are mitzvahs that make common, are common sense. Don't steal, don't kill. If you hurt someone, you have to fix it, don't lie, and things like that. And then there's a category of mitzvahs which are chukim. Chukim are mitzvahs that are above and beyond our understanding. And there are mitzvahs that we do them just because Hashem told us to do them. So what makes kosher really very different than any other mitzvah that we do? So first of all, the fact that it's a mitzvah that we don't understand, and we do it just because Hashem told us to do it, that's something special on its own. Imagine a husband and a wife, or a parent and a child, they ask the other to do something, the parent asks the child to do something, doesn't give a reason, and the kid enthusiastically runs and does it right away. That takes a special place in a parent's heart, in a parent's heart, and so on. So doing things just because Hashem asked us to do that, that already puts it on a whole different level. But there are a lot of chukim. So what makes kosher even more unique than that? So we know that when a person eats, the saying goes, you are what you eat. And when a person eats, that food that he puts into his body changes and becomes with blood, his energy, his muscles, and his vitality. What he eats, that's what keeps him alive. Without the food, we can't live. And when a person eats something which is not kosher, which is usr, usr means tied. It's tied to the other side. It's tied to sitra achar. It's tied to the other side of godliness and holiness. Because God said, I don't want you to eat that. I want you to stay away from that. And that's no good for you. So when a person eats that, and it becomes part of the person, it goes into the person and stays there for a really long time. And science helps us to understand that today. Even though the Alter Rebbe wrote this two and a half, 250 years ago in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe writes in Peir Ches, the 8th chapter, he writes that if somebody ate something that wasn't kosher, and then with that energy of what he ate, he went and did some heroic great mitzvah, ran, stabbed all day and learned, and then he saw a little old person crossing the street, and with all that strength of what he ate, he ran and caught that guy and saved him from getting hit by a bus. So he did some great things with the power and the energy that he had from the food that he ate. But the Alter Rebbe explains, if he ate food that wasn't kosher, that was still connected and tied, it was usr, it was still connected and tied to the other side. So all those mitzvahs and all the davening and learning and everything that he accomplished, it's all great, but he can't really lift it up so high because it's being held down, it's tied down. And like I said before, now science has helped us understand this a bit. <coughs> I'm sure all of you know somebody that might know somebody who once tried to lose weight. <laughs> and there's a very interesting phenomenon when people try to lose weight. They go on a diet, and some people work extremely hard to lose the weight. Really hard. And there are people that can lose 10, 20, 30, 40, 50... 80, 100 pounds. And they can do it without surgery and without shots and without just out of pure will, not white knuckling it, trying hard, and it's amazing. They transform themselves and they lose the weight. And everybody tells them, You look so good. And wow, you look great. And they feel great. And there's no reason in the world for them to ever go back to gain that weight. But yet, 90% of the people gain the weight right back. And most of them gain it with some interest. They gain it even a little bit more. Mm. And science wanted to know, why is that? It's not that they don't have willpower. It's, oh yeah, they do. And it's not that they didn't try hard. It's not that they didn't feel good. It's not that they regretted it. So how does it happen that they gain the weight back? And science explains today that when a person creates a fat cell... That cell stays in your body forever. And when you diet, you shrink that cell. But as soon as you let your guard down, even just for a moment, that cell will blow right back up. And that's why it's so difficult to lose weight. 
Because when you put something in your body, it stays there forever. Can you ever get rid of those cells? Yeah, you can. And you've heard that speech many times. Diets don't work. You have to change your whole lifestyle. You have to exercise. You have to eat differently. You have to think differently. You have to change your whole self. Then you'll succeed in keeping the weight off. And the same thing holds true with kosher. It's very difficult to get those cells and that unkosher food out of the body. Unless you start to serve God out of love and with fire and with zest and perhaps you burn it out of your system. It's very can be done, but it's very, very difficult. And since it's so difficult, and since it can stay in your body for all those, for such a long time, this is a mitzvah that you have to be extra careful with. Because if you don't if you don't pay attention, you're not careful, the non-kosher food enters the body and has really a really hard time coming out. Non-kosher food is like poison for the neshama, for our soul. So, would you eat something that someone said, oh, you hear, no, this, don't eat this, this is, this is poison, this has salmonella in it. Or did you hear, everybody got sick who ate this dish. Ah, and somebody says, no, it's good, I saw someone ate it, it's good, it's fine. Would you trust that? I don't know, most people wouldn't. And if someone said, no, it's, it's, it's really bad, they have to rush someone to the hospital because he ate something. Oh, but somebody else said, oh, it's fine. I saw somebody else. It's fine. It's fine. It's good. They wouldn't have put it here on the table if it wasn't good. I mean, they wouldn't have put Hebrew letters on it if it wasn't kosher. But somehow, for the food product that is poison for our neshama, we're a little bit more lax about that. And that's why we have to be really careful about what we eat. And we can't just eat something because it has a certification or it has Hebrew letters. Because here in Israel, you can eat every single thing. And that would hold true for everywhere. And there are people that say, oh, that guy said it's good, so it's probably good. We can't really rely on just knowing that it has a certification. You have to know who are the certifying rabbis, what are their standards, and can they implement the things that they want to do. A very common question that is asked to me is, oh, is this certification good? Is that certification good? I don't know, maybe. Because generally, we don't certify people, we don't certify certifications. We certify products. And products are very different one from another. For example, what do you think is more difficult to certify? A huge flavor company that makes many, many different flavors. A flavor company is a company that's exactly that, they make flavors. So when you buy a blueberry yogurt and it tastes like yum, delicious blueberry yogurt, you're not really getting the flavor from those two sad blueberries that are sitting in the bottom of the yogurt. You're actually getting the flavor from a flavor that was made for that yogurt. And the same holds true. Think of it as food coloring. We're all very familiar with food coloring. If you want to make the icing on a cake pink or white or whatever to the blue, you just put a drop of food coloring and that changes the color. You can do that with flavors as well. So a flavor company can have hundreds and hundreds of ingredients. Thousands. We have one flavor company that has over 17,000 ingredients. What's more difficult? To certify a big, huge company or a restaurant? A restaurant. That's a good answer. Long term, long term or short term? Either. I'll take any. A flavor company. Um. So, it depends. You see, a big company doesn't want any surprises. Everything is trackable. They want to get their deliveries the same day, the same time, the same from the same manufacturers. If they're uh, producing a soft drink, they want the flavor to come in the same time. They don't want anything. They don't want no surprises. They want to have enough stock. They want every, everything has to be trackable and so on. A restaurant's just the opposite. A restaurant does not want to have stock. If a restaurant would have stock from last week, nobody would eat here next week. They want fresh food every day. And they will send the, the person who's working out, oh, we ran out of oil, go get oil. So in a way, it's easier to certify because we're familiar with the products they use in a restaurant. 
It's like your house, just much bigger, like your own kitchen, but just much bigger and more complicated. But it's okay. But in a way, it's much more difficult to certify as opposed to having something which is every time the same. So when someone asks, is this certification good? It depends. It depends what are they certifying. What is the product? Is it, I'm just going to give you drastic examples. Is it <coughs> water or bread or something very simple? Maybe it's good enough for that. Is it something very complicated? Maybe not. Okay? Is it wine? I don't know. What are their standards for certifying wine? Wine is a complicated product to certify because they use it in the base amygdash, because um, the non-idol worker, idol workers would, would sacrifice it to their gods. Whatever the reasons is, wine is very complicated. So what are their standards? So when a person asks, is this a good certification? The answer usually is, I don't know. Uh, what, what is the product that we're talking about? And that gets very complicated, especially here in Israel, with all the different certifications and things like that. In practicality, when somebody wants to get certified today at the Circle K, how do we do that? So the, the OK does not solicit accounts. If you want to be certified, you have to come to us. Not that we're snobby. We just don't want to talk you in to being certified kosher if you don't really want it. We want companies that want to go kosher and they want to hold up to the standards and we'll help you. We'll tell you what they are, we'll tell you how to do it, and we'll help you. But we're not here to impress upon you. Go kosher and you'll have more sales, it's going to be better for you. That's not what we do. So if a company wants to go kosher, they call us, they contact us, and then there's a whole series, a whole bunch of steps that need to be done. The first thing would be, tell us, where are you located? What is the product you're making? And tell us the ingredients that you're using for your product. And how do you make it? Is there anything else you're making in the facility? Why do we ask these questions? Well, to know where they certify, where they make the product, well, we have to know where to go to actually visit that product. Now, in order to certify a product, there's two parts. There's the setup of the facility and making sure that everything is right. And then there's the maintaining the, the visits, the unannounced, the special inspections that we don't tell the companies when we're coming. Rabbis come in all times and all hours of the night. They come pop up at companies to make sure that they're doing everything like they said they're doing. Yes, we sign a legal contract and everything's clear and written, but still you have to check and you have to make sure. So we have, it's like maintenance to keep it going. How often do companies visit it? Well, that depends on what they're producing. Sometimes you have companies that are producing things that are very low cautious risk. A flower company, a water, a bottled water, all kinds of companies that are low risk. Such a company can maybe be visited even once a year or maybe twice a year. A sugar company, there are things that are inherently not so problematic. Then there are companies that produce kosher and non-kosher in the same factory. Oh, that gets a lot more complicated. You need more visits. Well, how about if the kosher product is round and the non-kosher product is square? Oh, we can maybe hold, we can turn back a little bit on the visits. How about if they're making identical products or they're using identical ingredients? The kosher product needs to have kosher oil. The non-kosher product, we don't know. We don't care. They might have non-kosher oil. We might have to have a rabbi every time they're producing per production. How about a company that produces cheese? Cheese is a very complicated thing to do, kosher, because givinas akum, even if it means cheese that is not, not made by Jewish people or owned by Jewish people, even if all the ingredients are kosher, it's not kosher unless there's a rabbi there full-time when they're doing it. Because a rabbi is the one that has to put in the rennet into the milk. A rabbi has to either watch at the, at the bare minimum but actually put in the rennet, and there are facilities that do this every 45 minutes. They put in rent. In such facilities, we have not one mashkiach, but we have three mashkiachim. Round the clock, three eight-hour shifts. Even on Shabbos. Even on Pesach. Even on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's not an easy task for us to get mashkiachim. We actually have an apartment in the facility, in the factory. They have an apartment there, and they take shifts. And... Sometimes we could have a couple, can go a husband and wife. Sometimes we have other kinds of people, all kinds of arrangements, and it's a full-time thing just to make sure that there are full-time mashkichim to make sure that there's somebody always there three times, three shifts, 24-7. 24 
So, when we get your initial application, we need to know where are you located. Is there a rabbi that can make the regular visits, the monthly visits? Or does he have to travel 10 hours to get to you? Are you in Vietnam? And there's only one rabbi that we have in Vietnam, and it'll take him a day to get to your facility, even though you're making it fairly simply, even though you might be making just pickles. Uh, that'll, that'll drive up the cost a bit. If you're in your shalim around the corner, that might bring the cost down. And they, basically, this is how we, how we charge companies to certify them. How much work do we need to put in to certify this company as kosher? It's not by how much you produce and not by how often you produce. It depends what do we have to do to make your company kosher. So we need to know where you're located. Then we need to know what you're making. And then we need to know what are the ingredients that you're using. Now, just to tell us that, oh, we're using this and this ingredient and it's kosher, that's not really enough for us. You know, years ago, you could have tell anybody, oh, I'm an American citizen. Oh, I'm a British citizen. I'm an Israeli. People would believe you. But today, nobody would believe you if you say that. They say, show me your passport. Show me your papers. Show me that you're an American citizen or wherever you're from. The same thing holds true for every single kosher product in the market today. Every product has a kosher letter. You can think about it as a kosher passport. The letter will say where it comes from. How was it shipped? Is it in bulk? Is it in containers? Is it by truck? Is it by tanker? Is it by ship? All different kinds of information about this product. Does it need to have a logo on the product? Does it need to have a rabbi's signature on the product? Because maybe it was made by production. Does it need a lot number so we can track it? It gets very complicated. We need to know all these little different details to be able to assess what are the ingredients that are actually kosher. And to break it up, you could basically have three kinds of ingredients. You can have ingredients that are inherently kosher. You can have ingredients that are inherently not kosher. And there's nothing we can do about it. We can't bless it. And we can't make believe it is kosher. And then we have ingredients that are kosher certified. And that starts the whole production here. How is it kosher certified? Who certified it? Was it done in the kosher protocol? Was it done properly? Was it done right? And if it was done right, then we can accept that product. So that's a whole department in our office that deals with all the ingredients and the kosher letters and approving them and what needs to be looked at a little further. And that's one of the things we need to do on the application. Once everything makes sense on paper, a rabbi is going to go to make the initial setup at the facility. That's called the initial inspection. Those rabbis will either fly out from New York or from Israel here. And we fly all over the world. They're the flying rabbis. Two weeks a month, they're out on the road or out in the sky. They're everywhere in places you can't imagine. Everywhere. And they get to the facility. And what are they looking for in the facility? First of all, are all those ingredients that you said you're using, are those the actual ingredients that you're using? Second of all, do you make anything else in this facility that you might have not told us? Have you forgotten something? Third of all, in order for something to be kosher, it's not enough that all the ingredients are kosher. You need the equipment, the pots, the pans, the machinery, the ovens. They also need to be kosher. Do the, does this equipment need to be kosherized? And if it does, how do you kosherize it? If you go to a cookie facility, cookies need to be in the oven, let's say, for 45 minutes. So what do you think happens in the morning after the first batches go in? You think everybody just waits around for 45 minutes till the first batch of cookies are going out? That's good for a mom and pop shop. But for a big facility, what do they do? Some facilities have ovens that are a block long, that are 300, 400 feet long, just the oven. And it works on a chain, on a belt. And they put the raw cookies in on one side. It takes 45 minutes for it to get to the other side. And when it gets to the other side, it's ready. And then it gets packed. How do you kosher an oven like that if you have to kosherize it? Just warming it up might not be enough. Sometimes you have to kosher the actual belt. The belt is not, it's not paper, it's not rubber, it's usually metal, it's like a chain link. So sometimes you have to kosher that, you have to kosher that with fire. There are many times that the facility has to build a special fire shooting robot, so to speak, that is aimed at the beginning of the, of the line, and as they run the whole belt through, it koshers the whole belt, and the rabbi has to be there. 
rabbi has to decide what needs to be kosher. Then he has to decide how often does a rabbi have to come to maintain this place. Lots of decisions. After he makes all those things, he can figure out, he'll send it to the va, to the main rabbinical court here by us. We'll go through it, we'll see that if his, if his assessment was right, do we miss anything? We'll double check. We're just here to make sure that we're doing it right and to cross our, our, our T's and dot our I's. And then we will tell the company, this is what it costs a certification. We will sign legal papers, a contract, saying that they will only do this and they won't change it. If they want to change something, they have to get it approved in writing first. And that's the way certification happens today in our days. You mentioned before that let's apply something from regular halacha and how does that apply to today's modern age. So there's a very interesting din in the Shulchan Aruch that if a person has a pot of meat cooking on the oven and a little speck of milk got splashed and got sprayed on the outside of the pot. Today we don't have that so often because today, modern kitchens, we have two ovens, two stoves, two sinks. As a matter of fact, you know, to make a, a kitchen very functional, which Rosh Hashem, we all have kitchens and you want to make them functional, you have to have an un- unobstructed triangle from the three main parts of the kitchen, from the sink, the stove, and the refrigerator. We can't have like an island in the middle. That makes it for an uncomfortable kitchen. You have to have a triangle. It doesn't have to be equal, all sides, but you have to have an unobstructed triangle. And by the way, if it's 22 feet long, all three sides, your kitchen's comfortable. If it's a little less than 22 feet, it feels crowded. If it's more, it feels spacious. That's what the architects and the designers think. But for a kosher kitchen, you need more than one triangle. You need a mug and oven. Because <laughs> you need two sinks and two stoves and two ovens. You don't need two refrigerators, but you get the point. So today we don't have that situation so often. But in days of old, certainly our parents, our grandparents certainly had that situation that it could be on the four flames of the fire. You had a meat product here, a meat pot, chalmed, and some milk or something splashed on the outside. Tipas of so what's the din? The din is that it's no good. Not so simple. We say that the milk was absorbed in the the meat was absorbed in the pot, it becomes strafe. So how does that play out in today's day? So in today's day, in big factories, the way they cook product is not like the way we cook in our home. In our house, when you want to cook something, you take a 10-quart pot, or if you're making a big chant and you have a lot of girls coming over and a lot of guests coming over, so you'll take a 15-quart or a 20-quart big pot, you'll fill it up, and you'll light a fire under it, and it'll, burn for, it'll cook for three hours, four hours, five hours overnight, and then you have the meal. But in a factory, this is a very, very bad way of cooking. Why? Because in the factories, their pots are not 20 quarts. They could have silos as big as this room. They could have 500 gallons. Now just imagine, how big is that flame to be able to cook a 500-gallon silo or a big pot? First of all, it's very dangerous to have such a big fire. Second of all, a lot of energy is being wasted. A lot of heat is being dispersed to the sides, and that's just wasted. Third of all, the top is not going to get as hot as the bottom. And a small pot doesn't really make a difference. It's just about the same. It is the same. But if it's 30 feet or 10 meters, 15 meters up, certainly the bottom's going to be much hotter than the top. So how do they handle these problems? So you could put a mixer, something should agitate it, move the top and the bottom, but that still doesn't help the fact that you have a lot of wasted heat energy out to the sides. And it's really dangerous to have such a big fire. So they took a tip from NASA. How is it that the astronauts stay warm up in space? The base is freezing. How do they stay warm? The answer is they wear those huge, bulky spacesuits. Now, why are those spacesuits so bulky? The reason is 
because the spacesuit is lined with pipes. There's a little pipe, a little coil that goes all around the entire suit. And there's a little furnace, something that has hot water or hot liquid of some kind, and it warms it, and it, it, it circulates through all those pipes. And that's how they stay warm. So they figured out they could do the same thing in factories. They take a big, huge silo, and they wrap it in a pipe all around, and then they run hot water through that pipe. Or better yet, they run steam through that pipe. And that gets really hot, and that warms the whole, the whole silo, the whole big, huge container. <coughs> now they actually fix a lot of the problems. Now the top and the bottom are all heated equally. The energy is not lost to the sides because it's all insulated from the outside. All the heat is directed inwards. And it's safe. So that's how they did it for a long time. Then someone came up with another idea. What happens to the end of the line of the steam? It usually goes out through the chimney. goes right out through the roof. And that's where you see factories, a lot of steam coming out. But then someone said, you know, if we can catch that steam and catch the condensation, There'll be a lot of water there. That water will be really warm. We can save a lot of money if we can redirect that steam, that water, that condensation back into the steam lines. So now we don't have to heat up the water from almost freezing or from very cold. We're halfway there. We're three quarters of the way there. It doesn't really mean much to us when we're talking about a little bit. But when you're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of gallons, this starts to add up. So here, you have something called the steam return. So the steam is going throughout the whole system, and then on the top, instead of going out the, out the chimney, it goes back into the boiler, all that condensation rolls back into the water pot, it boils up again, it doesn't have to work that hard, and it's going through. Now, how about if you have cooking a lot of different things in your facility? You don't have one vat, you don't have one big tanker, you have five. You don't need a separate heating for each one. You can use one big steam return for all of them. Flip the switch, it'll go to this pot as well. And then it goes, there's a tea, and it goes to the next one, and to the next one. What happens if you're making something non-kosher in one, and now you're making some kosher in the other? The one that's non-kosher, the steam becomes non-kosher. Because we just said the little drop of milk makes it non-kosher. Now that non-kosher steam is going to the kosher product. Hmm. So here, we come and we take a simple halacha that you think, oh, what would this mean? And in practical cases, these are things that our rabbis deal with every single day. Yes? Wait, are there companies that produce kosher and non-kosher products in the same facility? Absolutely. Absolutely. And a company like that, we would have to have a mashkiach, the on-site rabbi. Sometimes he has to be there every day. Depends on the product and depends on how they're doing it. So it would be great if companies would be only kosher, but we don't have that luxury yet. So here's a practical idea of how, how we use our lacha like that. Um, it's also interesting to note that the three mitzvahs that continue the continuity of Kla Yisrael were given to the women. To have a holy house, Arasamashbacha, which is kashrus and adlakas anayis. This week's parsha is tetzava, and the very first pasuk the Baal term says va'ata tetzava. He says tetzava has the numerical value of five hundred and one, the same numerical value as nashim tziva, tell this to the women, and that's the pasuk that says lahadlik ner tamid, to light the candles, to brighten the world. And we could say it's near tamid, it's forever, because it's the Jewish woman, the Jewish mothers, and the Jewish ladies that keep the house and keep the continuity of Klai Yisrael. So it's very fitting that we have a little kashrus discussion here in this week. If you have any kashrus questions, we can take it, or else I can tell you some other stories. <laughs> or else there'll be a test. Yeah. <laughs> um, you said that there are kosher products that are produced during, like, on Shabbat, during Shabbos, right? But um, I've heard that I might be I might be wrong. That's okay. Um, if you put, for instance, in the oven and it's like one third off, like mild or stoic, right? Um, it's considered non-kosher. So it depends who that. If a Jew put it in there, right? 
these companies are not run by Jews. They have all kinds of people working there. Yeah. So that really wouldn't apply on the Shabbos. Yeah. Because so it's, not it a doesn't Jew. depend on the product. It doesn't really depend on the product. Depends. But that brings up another question: Can a non-Jew cook for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that depends on what the product is. If it's something which can be eaten raw, then you don't have a problem. If it's something that, not, that is not fitting to serve at a royal banquet, then that's also okay. Matter of fact, they knew a rabbi that every time there was a new product and he wanted to know if it needs to be Bishri Israel, he would call Buckingham Palace <laughs> to find out, would they ever serve this to the queen? <laughs> but what it really means is, would you serve it by a wedding? Would you serve it by a state dinner? I mean, would you give tuna fish? Or would you give something that, at a state dinner, or at a wedding, at a Shabbos meal, listen, everything can be eaten any time. I mean, I remember when President Reagan, he liked to eat the jelly beans, so. But that's not something that you would serve at a royal dinner, officially as the main course. So, to your question, so it depends what the products are. And if it's something that has to be cooked, that, and it's something that's just not eaten raw, and it's something that can be served at a royal dinner, then we have to take provisions and we have to make sure that at least at the bare minimum, the fires to those ovens were lit by a Jew, by the mashkiach. Which that alone is a whole class of its own, how we do that. In some places they actually go every day and turn on the fire. Sometimes these ovens are so big, they, don't never, they never close the fire because it would take five days for it to heat up to the proper degrees because it's so long, so far. In some places, we have to have different kinds of methods of how to make sure that the fire is on. And we have to also make sure that the fire stays on and that there wasn't a breakdown in the oven when he wasn't here. Now an hour you went and fixed the oven and returned the fire. How do we know that it's the same flame? Fire is still on from when it was. So there's all kinds of different ways. Sometimes we have to put a certain seal on the gas line. Sometimes you have to put a seal on an electric breaker or whatever it should only be. And there's all kinds of different ways how we how we make sure that it was lit properly and that it's considered Bishri Yisrael. Bishri Yisrael, by the way, is not something which is optional. Bishri Yisrael is something if it's cooked and it doesn't fall into the two categories, the two loopholes that I said before. In other words, that it is not eaten raw and that it can be served for a... Uh, uh, royal banquet, then it has to be cooked by a Jew. And that's really a very important thing, and that is even if all the ingredients are kosher. That doesn't negate that issue. And this is something which some people make a mistake, and they don't realize that they might have help in the house, non-Jewish people, who might have in the house a cleaning lady or a butler or something like that, and you have to make sure that they don't cook supper for you. And if they do, you have to make sure that you turn on the oven, that you turn on the fire, and that's something which is really, really important, and sometimes people don't know that, and that can get very complicated, and sometimes you might even have to kosherize the dishes, and it's not a happy situation. Carmen, you had some questions. Oh, yeah, I had a few questions. Um, well, I just came up with a question that like, I'm really curious about. Um, can a mashkiach like, watch the video cameras? Excellent, excellent question. That's an excellent question. Mm-hmm. Can you do hashkacha through video cameras? Milk. Well, we're just going to take it on everything right now. Yeah. We'll take it on everything. So, and let's take it a step further. Do we rely on cameras? Do we have cameras in our places? If it's our own cameras. Huh? If it's like... So it depends. So it depends. Do we have cameras in our food service locations? We highly, we really try hard to make sure that every single food service location, restaurant, caterer should have cameras and that we have the access to check the cameras. Do we rely on that for certification? I would imagine every company does have. Some do and some don't. And it has to be in a way that we have access whenever we want. Do we rely on that on certification? The answer is no. Why? Because if you want to trick the camera, it's really easy to do that especially if it's on the Wi-Fi. Oh, the router went off for a second, just that second when someone brought something in. So we don't rely on cameras, but it's a good backup. In case something did happen, we could always go back to the camera and see what happened. 
And if we go back to the camera and suddenly only that minute is missing, that's a problem. Now, can you do Chal of Yisrael with the camera? What is Chal of Yisrael? Chal of Yisrael is milk that a rabbi, Mashkiach, has been there from the milking, from the beginning till the very end. And he ensures, he testifies, he bears witness that this milk is only coming from cows, kosher milk. Can we have cameras to do that? Most agencies say no. Some agencies in certain situations say yes. If the farm, if the dairy is owned by a Jew, and it's here in Eretz Yisrael, for example, there are some agencies that rely on the cameras from Chal of Yisrael, but not outside, not out of Israel. So that will take you back to your, my original question. Is this a good certification? It depends. On milk, maybe this is a certification that relies on cameras and I don't really want to rely on a camera. Or maybe it's in Israel and it's Jewish-owned dairy and there is a mashkiach who goes in all the time, he's just not sitting there 24-7. In that situation, maybe yes. So the answer to that question is we do not rely on cameras, yet we encourage every place to have cameras. And not only can you trick a camera, the first day when you have the camera, the guy is watching it a whole day. The second day, he's watching it three quarters of the day. By the end of the first week, he doesn't even want to look at the screen. It's really, really hard to just stare at a screen to see if anything is happening. And you would have to have really, really high-quality cameras to see any ingredient change or anything. So, as a general rule, we do not rely on cameras. Um, the next question is, like, from my understanding, like, smoothies need a hashkaka. Like, what, what could go wrong? What did you say? Smoothies. Smoothies. Like what could go wrong? Like it just. How many things should I tell you? Huh? How many things should I tell you can go wrong? (laughs) So so let's let's break it down. We're talking about a fresh smoothie that they're making in a store right in front of your eyes, or you're talking about buying buying a drink that is ready made as a smoothie. So buying a drink that is a smoothie certainly needs ashkacha without any doubt because they have lots of flavors, and not necessarily are all those flavors from the apples and the oranges and the banana and the strawberries that they put in there. Not only that, if it's bottled, it's probably pasteurized, which means that it was warmed up, it was cooked for a very short time, but it was cooked in equipment that might have other things there. And natural smoothies might have some grape juice in there. Oh, that's, that happens a whole new, a whole new thing. Now, if you want to know, can you go to a regular shop that makes smoothies and have a smoothie right there. Can you go to the shop where they make smoothies and have a smoothie right there? So in Israel, short stop, you can't do that because you have to make sure that truma and meiser was all given from the fruit. So stuck in the water right at the first get-go. So in Israel, it's problematic and you need to have a good certification. Not only in the Shemitah year, but always, because from my sister, they have to over here. How about if you're not in, in, in Israel, you're in California or New York, and a little smoothie shop opens up, and you want to know if you could have a smoothie there. Theoretically, if you can see all the equipment, you can see that he's using a clean blender, and you can see he's using a clean cup, and you can see the ingredients that he's putting in, and he's putting in oranges, strawberries, banana, and something else right there in front of you, theoretically you don't need a certification for that. What about insects? Insects. Excellent question. What about insects? So the answer is as follows. To make a smoothie, you don't just put it in a grinder. You have to put it in a blender, not just a regular blender, but one that pulverizes the food. So if you washed those vegetables, so once you wash the vegetables, we're already one step closer to having them clean. Part of the problem with eating unwashed vegetables or fruit, whatever it should be, is you cannot eat a complete little bug, even if it's tiny, because a complete little bug has a dint of a barrier, which means a complete creation, and that does never get notified. But if you wash these fruits before, and we're already to the belief that to make it eye you don't see any bugs, it's pretty clean. 
And then the person went and he puts it into a blender which pulverizes it. Then, at that situation, those bugs are not a bug anymore. It's not really an issue anymore. So theoretically, at the letter of the law, if you can see everything that they're making, yes, you don't need to have a certification. In actuality, you'd be better off always having a certification, just like with every product. If a product doesn't have a certification, your first question should be, why doesn't this product have a certification? Hmm. All the competitors have the certification. Why do these chips don't have a certification? So many other chips have a certification. Why does this drink not have a certification when all the other drinks do have a certification? The answer to that is that probably it can't have a certification because there's probably something non-kosher there and nobody wants to certify. Yes, it can be that it just didn't get around to kosher, but that's getting already something that's not so probable. Some of the reasons people gave us taxes. Like, it's more expensive to, like, to get a certification. So pr- some people think that kosher is, whoa, that must be great. But the truth is, the cost of kosher is probably the, one of the smallest costs that a company could do for their company to sell more product. <laughs> Just imagine, what does it cost to get a certification? So let's say a rabbi needs to go down once a month, mm-hmm. which is very common. How much does the rabbi need to get paid for making that visit? $100, $200, $300, $500, $1,000. What does it cost? Can't be too that much. And then there's some office work that we have to do. An average price, many companies are just a few thousand dollars for their certification. If you divide that into the, all the millions of products, <coughs> pounds of product they're selling, it's minimum. Yes, by a cheese facility, when you have three full-time rabbi, three full-time salaries, it's a little more, but it's very small more. And even if it's so small, it's worth the investment. What would it cost to make an ad campaign in a well-respected magazine or during the Super Bowl? What would they pay to make a campaign to hope that they can get another shares of the, some more people to buy their product? For a few thousand dollars to try to get a whole bunch of more customers, even if it's 1% or 2%, 10%, it's surely worth it. So cost is not really the main issue here in kosher. The main issue in kosher is can you be kosher? And can you stick with the protocol with our system? As a matter of fact, that's one of the things the rabbis check. They say, how probable is it for this company to go kosher? Is it going to be so difficult that we're just setting them up to fail? We'd rather tell them right now. It's something that can't be done. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Um, can you, like, even just a few things, explain, like, when you're on vacation, what you can do, like, things that you can buy that wouldn't necessarily need a hexer, or that you're safe? So that do? alone, that too is a very complicated question. <laughs> like, what needs a hexer? <laughs> Listen, you can buy fruits and vegetables if they're not in Israel. you got to make sure. You think, oh, well, I mean, I'm in North Carolina. What would be, how could I get fruit from Israel? But if you go to Costco, very often you would see um, peppers from Israel. And the same thing, if you go to Walmart, you might see oranges from Israel. Wherever you, you, many times it says on the packages where those products come from. And if they come from Israel, they have to have a hatcher. Um, you want to buy cut-up fruit? So that depends. If it's in a big Safeway store, Walmart, Publix, or something, probably... They have a designated knife for the fruit. They're not really cutting the fish and meat with the same, same knife. And probably they're washing it out and they're pretty careful about contamination of one from another. So you can buy cut-up fruit if it's not Israel. But if it's a mom-and-pop shop at some little grocery store and, you know, a little garage or like one of these little stores, if you had it, then I would say no. You can buy fish if it has fins and scales and you know it's kosher even though it's not a kosher market, but make sure the guy washes the knife before he cuts it. And at least when you get it home, you wash out your fish really well. That's acceptable. Next question. You had one question, then. Yeah. Um, you, like, it's okay if you can't answer this, but like, why do people only like buy Jewish-owned products? Why do people buy only Jewish-owned like products? Like pastas or like... I know some chassidim are like... So... That's not really halacha. People buy, people who want to buy um, Jewish-owned products is maybe because they want to support... It's not kashrus? It's not really a kashrus issue. Okay. Um, just like 
You know how many different certifications there are? <laughs> Take a guess. Who no, wants the deer? How many certifications? 200. There's about 1,400 different certifications. <laughs> agencies. What makes an agency? Get a website. Make a card. And say, hi, I'm a rabbi. There are kosher agencies that are run by non-Jewish people. Really? Yeah. It's Which a great one? business. Which one? It's a great business. They are not even Jewish. I once had so some... It's a good kashas. There's some agency, Shamashkacha, which is Ashkacha Pratis. That's the guy who decided that exposure on his own. But you have to know who you serve. You have to know, that's why I said before, you have to know who your agency is. You can't just rely on it because it says kosher. I once had a lady call me, and she had a cheese facility, and she's looking for certification. So I spoke to her for a while, and then she said, all the the things that we need to do. And she said, listen, I'm Jewish. I don't know the first thing about Judaism. But since I'm Jewish, my company thinks that I know all about kosher. So I was given the task to make this kosher. And I spoke to her for a while, and she said, the truth is we are certified kosher. But the guy who comes, the rabbi, he wears more chains than you can imagine, and he tastes the food, and he tells us which are kosher. <laughs> now, I don't know the first thing about kosher, but I know that that is wrong. <laughs> so if you don't know, you don't know. And that's why it's important to actually know and follow through who is the agency and who are the rabbis that are standing behind this product. Any more questions? Yeah, one. Um, I wanted to ask about um, like pots and pans. If you had a pot um, that you have already used before, but let's say you want to change it to either like milk and flavor, or you've been given it by someone else, what's the person? Can you, is this something you have to just throw out and just get a new one? Not or? necessarily. Not necessarily. So first, you can kosher most pots, not all pots, but most pots. If it's Teflon, you probably cannot kosher it. It's a Teflon frying pan. Okay. You will ruin it. It will be gone. You can't, um, um, you know, if they cook meat in like these casserole dishes that are um, ceramic, mm-hmm. can't kosher that. But there are pots and pans that you can kosher, but there are also conditions. You can't kosher something back and forth from milchik to fleshik, the power of milchik to fleshik, because the chachamim know and they knew that you will forget and you will get mixed up. And what is this pot now? So, generally speaking, we do not kosher from dairy to meat, from meat to dairy, back and forth. We don't do that. If you got a present, you got a pot or something, and you just bought it and you want to kosher it, there, there, there are many times that you can kosher it. And there are ways to kosher it. Now, that will depend on what kind of pot it was and how was it used other handles on the pot where food might have gotten in the inside? Um, is the paintings on the pot? Is the pot very delicate and fragile that you might be afraid to really heat it up to very hot degrees so you can purge all the old flavor that's been in it? Mm-hmm. How was it used? Was it used directly on the fire? Or was it something that was boiled? Or was it used perhaps cold? These are all different questions that will determine how you can kosherize. That's it. English American kosher word that we made up, how you can kosherize or you can kosher a pot, and it's definitely it can be done to most to most utensils. No, there's one of the questions asked was about Starbucks coffee, where seemingly it should be easy, it should be kosher, but it might not be. You guys have all night. Harry, we have all night. So I can. We have till eight thirty. So the one and a half minute answer. So we cannot. I cannot talk for Starbucks directly because I've never been inside Starbucks kitchen to see how they operate, and I certainly haven't been in all Starbucks. So how will I be able to tell you what happens in Starbucks? But to a question, can I buy a coffee in a non-kosher place? Let's try to take it that much. So, first of all, what, is this, what does this place sell? Do they sell only coffee? Or do they sell sandwiches and some other things as well? Do they just sell dry goods, like maybe packaged stuff? Or are they actually warming up things and making sandwiches? They're actually cutting meat sandwiches for you. 
So if they're actually having treif in that same location, so now it gets a little problematic if I can buy coffee there. Why? Because how do they clean those forks and knives and all the utensils that they prepare everything with? How do they keep, how do they clean the coffee stuff? Are they using the same? Probably they are. Is the water hot? Probably. But do they put soap in the water? Hmm, probably. And that probably would ruin the taste of everything. Called nicing tam But when do they put that soap in? Before they start the cooking, the washing all together, or after? So these are a lot of questions that you have to ask. On the other hand, let's take it to a, a coffee shop that only sells coffee. Is there flavored coffee there? <laughs> Probably. But it's a, if it's a respectable coffee shop, they would never mix hazelnut coffee or vanilla coffee with regular coffee. Because the coffee ex- experts would say, this coffee's bad. And they would lose <laughs> everything that they stand for. Right? So they probably would keep it separate. So the answer to your question is, in one minute and 14 seconds, that it, a plain black coffee in a place where they only sell coffee, you probably can take that. If you wanted a black coffee in a place which they might sell other things, there are reasons to be lenient, but if you want to be careful, that's certainly a place where you could be careful and you should be careful. Yes? <laughs> uh, to that point, I have an online subscription at kashrut.com, and they just mentioned Starbucks that they had um, lost their certification for 85% of their products. But I don't know what level of certification they had. Does that mean that they decided not to pay for this? No, that could be. What does it mean they had certification for their products? Which this is also a really good question and something we can talk about. How long does certification last? Mm -hmm. If I certify a product, does that mean that this product is kosher forever? No. No, it's it's only kosher kosher till it's opened. Once it's opened, boom, you're on your own. So when they say, uh, uh, you say Starbucks or wherever, wherever, whatever company it is, lost their certification, what were they certified on? They were probably certified maybe on their coffee. But that doesn't mean that the location was certified. Because as soon as they opened it up in the location to serve you, the, the certification is not there anymore. Interesting. We've got one more minute. Um, I noticed once, I'm not sure, do you give uh, Hersheim for potato chips? Ones you, yeah. So ones that we shouldn't be eating. Maybe. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the companies, and it was, I don't know if it was Lay, I don't remember. All the potato chips had a hersher, except the ones that were baked. They did not have a hersher. I don't know if this is your company. So here's your here, hersher. So here it'd be just interesting to understand why with baking, obviously, they do something that makes it non-kosher while everything else. Just so I'm going to back this up. I'm going to, I'm going to back this up a drop, and I'm going to even I'll explain it a little bit differently. How could it be you go into a supermarket and you see the same product? Some are certified and some are not. It looks the same exact product. Oh, it must be a mistake. It must, the certification must have fallen off. I mean, what happened? The same product. The answer is it might be the same product, but they're probably made in two separate places. And when you certify something, it's really based on the facility. That the products out of this facility are kosher. So it could be that the potato chips that had the certification were made in certified facilities, and the one that didn't have was made in a different facility. Don't believe that it was because it was baked that it wasn't certified. It wasn't certified either because it was made in a different facility, or there was something, an ingredient in there that wasn't kosher. The potato chips need to be pasta syrup, bichelie syrup. Do you serve it in Buckingham Palace? <laughs> what kind of potato chips? Is there a difference between cream bowls? I'm still waiting for my invitation from the Queen. <laughs> and, and, oh, I think you missed that one. I think you missed that one already. Is there a difference between regular potato chips and cream bowls? Yes. Ah. yes. That alone is up for the bait. Real potatoes and because regular potato chips are made out of potatoes. And Pringles, they actually made out of potato mix. They grind up the potatoes. They make it really not servable for a king. And then they squeeze them in these little um, forms. So some people say that the Pringles are actually a very fancy potato chips and perhaps you would serve that 
Pringles? Yeah. <laughs> Other people say, no, no, it's not even, it doesn't even start. That's not even really a potato. Other people say, how could a potato, a potato is a poor man's food. How does that become something that ends up on a king's table to begin with? Other people say, but little purple potatoes are very fancy potatoes. They serve them at all fancy dinners. And there are very there are many different opinions about that. The OK's opinion is that potato chips need to be visually strong. Really? I'm sorry for taking, for taking one time. I'm just uh, very curious about, um, specifically in restaurants, but in factories too, isn't it that Bishol as well requires a Jew to be shown in, in some um, cases? Most of the cases. Most right. of the time, that is the case. And how do people check that? Because I just remember there was a whole scandal. I was living in remote before, and there was this one girl who would go and put on the fire and whatever. And everybody, like, and some people saw her smoking. <laughs> so, <laughs> listen, it, the agency that hires that mashkiach has to do its due diligence. Right. We have to investigate, we have to find out about the person. We have to ask who's their rabbi, do they come to shul, do they look like a Jew, do they seem to act like a Jew. I mean, we can't just say here, say, oh, someone, I heard that, I thought that it could be that he's not Shem Shabbos. That really doesn't work. Um, so you have to have we, we investigate before. We, we, we have people that look into this. And, oh. and yes, sometimes it could happen that uh, someone was Shem Shabbos and somehow we slipped off a little bit. And then we have to do the most uncomfortable thing and say, you can't work for us anymore, mm-hmm. or so on. Thank you so Thank much. You. You're, You're very welcome. Insightful. Very interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you.